So we got through most of energetics, I think, uh, last time we were here on Monday, right? Talking about different states of energy, different kinds of energy, um, and going through, very importantly, our two laws of thermodynamics, right? Um, our first law, which states that Our first law, well, yeah, it's time to, time to, time to learn, right? Created or destroyed. It's either way, you know, you're perfectly, I would accept that for full credit on the exam. And our second law of thermodynamics, which is? Be like that, right, on the next exam, without looking in your notes, but first one. Good job, good job. All right. Woohoo. So yeah, you're absolutely right. So um, whenever we try to think about what molecules are doing, what energy is flowing, what kind of processes are happening, we need to think of both of those laws of thermodynamics at the same time. When we're looking at high energy molecules, low energy molecules, and things like that, we always have to keep in mind that because that molecule is carrying a lot of energy, um, that energy came from somewhere. Okay, It is not made. Right? It is just converted from something else. Right? And all along the way, that energy is going from these higher concentrated to low concentrated forms. So if we have a nice high energy molecule like this, I should go back a second and tell you what I mean by a high energy molecule. When I'm talking about a high energy molecule like this, I'm talking about um, the amount of energy that is captured within all of those bonds. All right? So over here, we have six carbon dioxide. Right? Hey, come on in. Um, we have six molecules of water. We're saying these are low energy molecules. There is not a lot of energy in those bonds that we could actually use if we wanted to. Okay? Um, if we add up all the energy in six of these and all the energy in six of these and came up with a number in calories or, whatever, or joules or whatever you want to classify it as, um, that would be far less than the amount of energy in the sum total of all the bonds up here. Okay? So this has more energy in it even when you add the six carbon dioxide that are produced as a byproduct of this reaction, then this does down here. So the same number of atoms down here as you get up here, but a different arrangement. And the arrangement up here has more energy than the arrangement down here. So if, since it actually does have more energy, we have to ask the question, where does that energy come from? Where did we get that energy to make that happen? Okay, we can't have this equal to that. It's just not going to happen, right? We need to add energy to this to make this happen. So you may know of some things out there that take carbon dioxide and water and make big complex things like glucose out of them and release oxygen. We call them plants, plants and the reaction is called photosynthesis. photosynthesis, right? Specifically, it's that chloroplast, the green thing, right, in the plant that is actually doing that, all right? Um, you know that there's a lot of energy in this. You can get it back out pretty easily, right? Um, you can take some plants that have done this and incorporated a lot of these things into their cell walls, and you can recombine it with the oxygen, okay? Um, and you can kind of light it and get that reaction started. We call it a fire. campfire, right? Uh, you can do that, right? And once you get that reaction started, you can see that a lot of that energy is coming back out. Okay, so we're going to take some wood, we're going to gather it, we're going to put it on a pile, we're going to light it, right? And a lot of that energy is going to start to come out. Where did that, er that energy that's coming out initially originate from? The sun. The sun, absolutely, right? You guys are fine. Right? I expect good things on this next exam if we keep going this way. Lovely. Um, if you have a lot of water and carbon dioxide and a match, and I say, here's some carbon dioxide, here's some water, here's a match, go ahead and light it. What do you, what's going to happen? You're going to get hot carbon dioxide and hot water, right? You're not going to start any spontaneous release of energy or anything like that. There's just not that much energy in that, right? You can take molecules like this and combust them and get a lot of energy out. If you put a lot of this kind of stuff in your gas tank, you're just not going to be getting very far. There's not a lot of energy in those bonds that are accessible. There's energy in them. There's energy in all chemical bonds. Just nothing you can actually do anything with, right? There's not enough to actually liberate it via conventional means. In order to get the energy out of this, you have to do strange things to it, like add elemental sodium to it, right? Um, and really squeeze some of that energy out of those bonds to make that happen. It's not easy to do, <coughs> all right? Um, so you can drink all the water you want, breathe in on all carbon dioxide you want, you're not gonna get any usable energy out of it, obviously. Um, however, if you eat this, now you're good, right? You just have to go out there and eat a lot of plants, combine that with some 
oxygen, right? Um, and you can get the energy back out. So in that respect, how are you different from a campfire? You're absolutely not. You're having the exact same reaction happens that you see when you see uh, a campfire. You're having some glucose and some oxygen and you recombine it and you're getting it out, right? Within you, you're taking some glucose, you're breathing in some oxygen. You know, you're liberating uh, those molecules from each other. You're producing a lot of water and carbon dioxide and you get the energy out. You're essentially a campfire, although a complicated one, but a campfire nonetheless. A controlled campfire that's happening at a very low rate as opposed to the high rate campfires that you get um, up there. Okay, so any kind of these reactions, and this is where we were kind of ending up last time, any of these reactions where energy has to go in, okay, because the product has more energy than the reactants is called an endergonic reaction. Uh, the opposite of those, right? Oh, this is not what you do, by the way, right? These are what photosynthesis is, is doing right here. Chloroplasts are doing this. You are not doing this, okay? Um, you are not making glucose out of carbon dioxide and water. What you are doing is taking those glucose molecules and you're recombining them with oxygen, like we mentioned before, and you're taking it apart and you're getting that energy back out, all right? So we have these low energy products out here. So now the, what was the reactants over here is now the product over here, the six carbon dioxide and the six water, right? Um, and you took that glucose molecule and you combined it back together with the oxygen, just like you produced over here, all right? Um, and you get this stuff and uh, the release of a lot of energy. How much energy comes out? Less. How much energy comes out? More. How much did you put in over here? A lot. That's how much comes out, right? You get out as much energy as you put in because, Megan, Energy cannot be created or destroyed, right? So you're going to get out the amount of energy that you put in. See? It all works. Delightful. Uh, so if you make 2,000 calories worth of this, right, um, and then you recombine it in your body, you're going to get 2,000 calories out. Delightful. So uh, you're starting with a high energy molecule, right? A lot of energy in these bonds. You're generating through these reactions, these lower energy uh, uh, products. Um, and so a lot of the energy is coming out. When energy is going out of that reaction, we call them exergonic. If this was a chemistry class, we would call it exothermic, right? And we'd be measuring that amount of energy that comes out as heat, right? In a calorimeter. Anybody chemistry, chemistry class? calorimeters, right, when you see how much energy goes in and comes out of chemical reactions. Never mind. After I asked that, I was like, oh, did I really just bring that up? Because this is not going to end well. Lovely. All right, so what you would like to do, okay, when you have these exergonic reactions occurring, right, you would like to take as much of this energy that comes out as you can, okay, and you would like to capture that in this molecule called ATP which is a nucleotide, as you remember from our four biomolecules that we were discussing earlier in the semester. If you have an exergonic reaction happening in your body, like the breakdown of glucose or something like that, you can use those exergonic reactions to earn ATP. Okay, um, where you have energy being liberated from a biochemical reaction, that's where you can have at least the potential to store some energy in some of these bonds. Okay. If there's a reaction somewhere happening in your body where you have to spend ATP, right, um, where you have to take a molecule of ATP and get the energy back out, that would be in a, a kind of reaction like active transport, okay, where you actually have to get some work done, okay? So a good example of uh, a reaction where you have to spend ATP, well, we don't have to think of a specific one, we can generalize it already, we already have, right? Any kind of process in your body that goes against our second law of thermodynamics, any kind of a reaction where we build a concentration gradient, where we push molecules uphill, right? Those are all going to be reactions that require ATP, okay? So I think I mentioned, did I do this in this class last time? If you were all amino acids and I was making a large protein, okay? I'm going to gather you all up. You're nice and diffused around the room. And I'm going to make a really high concentration gradient of amino acids in this room by putting all in a chain and sequestering you up here in the front of the room. Right? Because you were diffused and now you are concentrated, right? that is a reaction that requires ATP. Right? It requires an input of energy to do that. 
the molecule now has more energy than we had in the past. All right, good. So this is the ATP molecule broken down a little bit into its subsequent parts. We'll see more of these adenines and riboses and things like that when we talk about DNA synthesis later on, right? But here's adenine, your carbon nitrogen base, okay? The same kind of adenine that you make uh, your DNA out of, the A of your DNA. Not, not the A of the word DNA, right? The adenine, guanine, cytosine, thymine, that kind of stuff, right? That A. Um, a ribose sugar, lovely, okay? Um, and three phosphate functional groups uh, coming off to the side. Remember what the phosphate functional group looks like? The phosphate with four oxygen. Yeah, with four oxygen going around side, and one of those oxygen has a double, yeah, that double bond on it because phosphate is weird like that, right? So if I'm going to have three phosphates lined up in a row, right, I'm going to have a lot of covalent bonds between oxygen molecules and really electronegative things, right? Those are really going to be very high energy bonds. They're going to store a lot of energy that we can get back out, right? So when we have, uh, when we have the ability to make this ATP, this is what we do, right? We store energy right here. We take a molecule of ADP, okay, the, uh, when this is organized into its ADB ATP form, we call it adenosine, okay? So we're going to call it adenosine adenine plus ribose. Diphosphate, if we have some energy that we can use, or okay, that we can store, we can take that energy and stick another phosphate onto the end of this thing, right? And store the energy right there in that bond, and then we're going to call it ATP adenosine triphosphate. So this is nothing more than an energy carrier, a bucket that we can use to carry energy around, okay? And we carry it in that bond, which is where we carry all of our biologically useful energy, okay? When it's in the low energy form, it's going to be ADP, okay? Adenosine diphosphate. When it's in its high energy form, it's going to be ATP, adenosine triphosphate, with the energy stored between that second and third phosphate. What do you think, Jessica? Good? Makes perfect sense, right? Absolutely. There is, there is. And you know, it's interesting because somebody asked me the exact same thing in my early morning section. Um, when you look at nucleotides and you're synthesizing a DNA strand, right, during the S phase of mitosis, blah, 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 right, or the S phase of the cell cycle, you have to, when you're gonna separate and make new cells, you need to grow an entire new DNA strand, right? Um, those don't use ATP directly in order to do that, okay? What you will do, you will take those four nucleotides, those A's, T's, C's, and G's, and you will drop off phosphate functional groups, two of them on every one, okay? So you'll have A's, T's, C's, and G's that will all have three phosphates lined up on them, right? When you synthesize that DNA strand, right, you will use the energy of those three phosphates. You will break this bond right here to provide the energy to bridge the gap between this nucleotide and the next one when you make the DNA strand. So when you make DNA, uh, make a new big strand of it, um, you kind of store the energy in the nucleotides earlier, right, and then you liberate them uh, by breaking this bond between the MP and the DP, right? So occasionally it does happen. There is a lot of energy stored here, and you can use it, right, to do things. Usually when we're just talking about the garden variety, how do I carry energy around my body, that kind of thing, it's almost always in the general sense, the ATP, ADP cycle that, that does that, all right? Good? All right, so this is biological currency, ATP, right? If you have ATP, you can spend it, okay? Um, and you can do things with it. Make big proteins, for example. Have some active transport happen. Get all of those, uh, all of those chloride ions out of, your, uh, ions out of your cells so you don't get the symptoms of uh, whatever, that, uh, whatever that illness was that escapes me right now. It wasn't bronchitis. It was far, far worse than that, right? It wasn't swine flu. We'll go on. We'll go on. Right? But that might be something that you would want to do. Do you just make up answers to these questions? Just kind of throw them out there to see where things are going to go? Right? Thanks for helping, though. Yeah. Uh, that's useful. Um, uh, okay, so we might be able to have some active transport happening. If we don't have any ATP, there is no work that we're going to be able to have happen. Right? We have no currency to spend, and we're just going to have to let things diffuse at that point. Right. Um, so again, I've answered this question about five or six times so far in this class. What does it mean to be dead? Right. Um, you no longer have any ATP to spend to go against those processes of diffusion and you start to diffuse. Right. Um, if we want to think about all the active transport and all the cost of how much it takes for us humans to live on Earth, it's about 2000 calories worth of ATP a day. OK, that you um, that you use, which is quite a lot, which is quite a lot. Why does 
That's the inorganic phosphate functional group, right? So if you have a reaction that is going to release energy in your body, okay, like combusting glucose, taking glucose and combining it with oxygen, you can take that energy that's liberated, right, and you can combine that ADP and that phosphate and make some ATP. If you have a reaction in your body that requires energy, you can take that ATP molecule and separate that third phosphate off and get some of the energy back out, which is good because that lets you do stuff like make big biosynthetic molecules and things like that, but then you're left with the ADP and the inorganic phosphate, and you have to have an energy-releasing reaction somewhere in your body to go ahead and put those back together again. And in order to put these things back together again, you have to add energy to it, right? This has more energy in its bonds, some total, than these do together, right? And so in order to make this from that, you need to combine it with a reaction that releases energy to do so. Okay. Does this sound like anything that you might have heard about in history class? Somebody say yes. Impress me with your ability to synthesize disparate information. Right? Um, this sounds exactly like the Industrial Revolution. Right? So let me switch over to my handy dandy document camera. Yeah, because that's what this is, you know. I don't think they've ever talked about the ADB ATP cycle on, on Blue's Clues, but they should. All right. I did not. Perhaps I was studying, I don't know. Right? Um, the Industrial Revolution, right? Uh, early 1800s, right? The whole thing was made possible <laughs> by James. Okay, what are we doing here? James, James Watt. Okay, who invented the steam engine, all right? Um, when he invented the steam engine, it was a good, it's nothing more than a good way to convert energy, right? And once you start doing that on the industrial scale, you can make things like factories, okay? All factories will have two sides. Even today, all factories will have two sides. One side, right, will be responsible for power. The other side will be responsible for work. The work, I mean, we can think of things like um, uh, a grist mill. We can think of a sawmill, right? We can think of the Maytag power plant, right? Or the, the Maytag factory where you put washing machines together, any of this kind of stuff, right? Um, all factories will have two components. On the power side, um, if we want to think about James Watt and things like that, we have a steam engine that is busily turning a crank okay and making things spin around right you heat the water up it gets compressed it runs through the little thing and it spins the wheel okay so that is the conversion of energy we're converting from chemical bond energy in the coal right to kinetic energy in the wheel that's spinning on the other side of the factory i'll use a different color right we have uh, what kind of factory do we want? Soda factory. Oh, my God. All right. Um, we will have a big sawmill, right? Uh, this is our big nasty saw that we're using to chop, to, to cut wood planks and things like that. And we want to link this thing to a wheel that's going to spin around. If we can get the wheel to spin around, it'll turn the saw and cut the wood, right? So what we have to do, we need to link this side over here to this side over here. How do we do that? How do you do that in a Victorian factory? I was going to say a belt, right? Um, you can run a belt along the wheel, pipe it over to the other side, run the belt around this wheel, little pulley right there, little pulley right there. When this turns, the energy is going to be transported over here, and this is going to turn. Good? Okay, so you're using the belt to link the energy converting process with the work side of the factory, right? This is nothing more than how all factories are structured, made possible by the Industrial Revolution, all right? So how does this relate to us? Instead of thinking about this as a big factory, we have, ugh, it's horrible. 
a cell. Okay? And on this side, over here, we have mitochondria. Okay? On this side, over here, we have a ribosome, for example, floating out there making large protein strands, right, with a strand of messenger RNA feeding through it, and a nice big protein is being constructed as that happens, right? This is an energy-converting site of the cell. This is a work-producing site of the cell, right? So how do we link this to that? We don't have the belt. We have the ATP-ADP cycle, right? So over here, we're going to make some ATP. We're going to send the ATP over here, where it's going to get spent, okay? That energy is going to be transferred from over here to the other side, right? Um, and essentially converted into the structure of this protein, okay? What we're going to be left with, right, is some ADP and that inorganic phosphate, right? That inorganic phosphate and ADP is then going to get sent back over here, where it can get more energy, from the mitochondria. We can burn more glucose, right? And we can go ahead and take that phosphate and reattach it back onto that ADP, all right? So when you think about, let me try to zoom out here. That's the wrong thing. How are these two things different from each other, right? Are these two things different from each other, right? They're the exact same thing. Okay, you have one site of the cell that is converting energy and another site in the cell that is making work happen. You have one site in the factory that's converting energy and another site in the factory where you're making work happen, right? It's the exact same process. So what lets you go from one to the other is the linkage. In the factory, it's the belt, right, that's transferring that energy from one site over to another site, right? In the cell, that's what the ADP-ATP cycle is, right? It's the linkage between energy liberating reactions and work producing reactions, all right? So you can think of the ADP-ATP cycle as that belt, right, that you can use to join the mitochondria to all the things that you need to have happen in your body that require work, that require effort, that go against your second law of thermodynamics. What do you think? Pretty cool. I agree. It's pretty cool. That make it clear in your head, right, what's actually going on in these cells, right? So without the mitochondria, it's like turning off your, uh, turning off your, your, uh, your steam engine. No work is going to be done, right? Um, you can only make big, interesting, convoluted work requiring things happen as long, right, as you're using those mitochondria. So you need to keep giving it oxygen, and you need to keep giving them glucose, right? As long as they're doing that, that belt's going to keep turning. Right? If you stop that belt from turning, you have a little bit of stored energy in your body. You have a little bit of stored ATP. How much do you have? Four minutes. How do we test that hypothesis? We can, yeah, we can do some pretty horrible things to you and, and see how long it takes. Right? Cut off oxygen, whatever. Right? Um, that's how we can do that. It's easy to store food. Right? It's easy to store calories. It gets easier as you age. Right, to store these kind of things. It's not easy to store oxygen in your, in your body. That doesn't store well. All right. Uh, so how this actually occurs, right, when you actually have to have a, a reaction happen in your body that requires energy, like active transport. Here's an excellent example of it, right? Um, these calcium ions right here cannot migrate through that phospholipid bilayer by themselves. They cannot because they have a charge, right? How does that prevent them from being able to migrate through because the tails are nonpolar, right? And the opposite state of charge cannot diffuse through each other, right? So it's the whole like dissolves like. Um, uh, this is not like, not dissolving, not like, right? Um, so uh, there's no way for this calcium to actually diffuse through this thing. It would prefer to. I mean, you can look at these calcium ions and you can see which direction the concentration gradient is. If these calcium ions could diffuse, they would diffuse into the cell. This is the outside, this is the inside, right? Uh, you have a higher concentration on the outside, so if left to itself, if it could, these calcium ions would diffuse through. 
Okay, but they can't because of the opposite charges, uh, the opposite state of charge in those tails. So we're all good. But that gives us another problem, right? Uh, we do actually have to be able to get these calcium ions to the outside of the cell itself, right? So we have two things here that we're having to do, right? We have to get these nice charged things through these nonpolar tails. That's going to require some work, right? I mean, we're also going up a concentration gradient. That's going to require some work, okay? So what we will do, we have our active transporter here, which does that one thing, and that one thing very, very well. Um, what we're going to do, we're going to take a molecule of ATP, and we're going to attach it onto this active transporter. Okay? We are going to break off that third phosphate, and we're going to leave that third phosphate behind, and the ADP is just going to go wander off where it can be reattached later on somewhere else. Right? We now say that this enzyme has been phosphorylated. phosphorylated, right? Um, it's ener the energy of that ATP molecule has been dropped off onto it, right? Um, and in doing so, it has absorbed and accepted some of the energy from that ATP molecule. So what it does, it does what it, most things do when they take energy from something else, right? That potential energy, that chemical bond energy is converted into kinetic energy, right? And the enzyme will move. It will change its shape, okay? When the shape changes, right, it will do so in a way where a little gap will open up right here in these, uh, these transmembrane tails, okay? When that little gap opens up, it will be the, just the right size and shape to take one of these little ions of calcium. So we now have a phosphorylated enzyme, okay, that has accepted the energy from an ATP molecule um, that has calcium stuck right up in here. What will then happen? The enzyme will essentially boot off that phosphate group, it'll dephosphorylate, which is, you don't have to write that down, it's just becoming unphosphorylated, you know? Um, and when it does that, it will obviously return back to its original configuration, right? In the process of that return, back to that lower energy, lower configuration state, right? It has to lose energy to do that. So where does the energy go? Into the, into the, into the calcium, right? Into kinetic energy in the calcium. It was moved again, right? Um, so now the energy has been converted out of the enzyme and has been transferred into the calcium where it gets shoved out to the outside, right? So both of our thermodynamic laws are not being violated here. We're well within uh, the confines of the law, the universal one, right? Because when you break those, you wouldn't believe the police that show up, right? Um, so we haven't violated any laws here. We haven't created energy. We haven't destroyed it. We've just moved it around. We've just moved it around, okay? Now, at every step along the way, every energy conversion that we've done here, right, we have also lost some of that energy to the environment, right? So you would expect the enzyme and the calcium to be a little bit warmer than they were before, right? They're going to be absorbing some of this byproduct heat. Okay, so you're doing this all the time, okay, uh, with all of your active transport and all that kind of stuff that you're having go on, right? Um, and each step along the way, you're releasing a lot of heat, okay, as this little byproduct. You have a lot of active transport going on. Every time you do that, a little bit of heat is lost to the environment, right? Um, you're going to have a lot of digestion going on. You're going to have a lot of walking around, moving, thinking, all this other kind of stuff. Every time you're going against a concentration gradient, you're going to be making this reaction happen, and you're going to be losing some heat in the process, right? How much heat are you losing? Enough to bring your body temperature up to 98.6 degrees, a good 20, 25 degrees over ambient temperature of this room, right? Um, how much active transport do you have going on? A lot of active transport going on, especially right now, hopefully, up here. Right, where you're making a lot of neural connections, a lot of sodium potassium pumps, charging neurons, and all that kind of stuff. Hopefully, anyway, we'll find out in a couple of weeks on the next exam, right? Yay. All right. Um, so we can think about the directionality and how these reactions progress um, kind of from a graphy physical kind of view, right? Um, we, can, we can take a look at where the energy is, what the energy levels are between these reactants and products. Um, if we have our reaction that's going to be moving in this direction, okay, we can actually count up, like I said before, mathematically, how much energy is in those bonds, okay? Um, and we will come up with a number in calories, in joules, in kilojoules, whatever it is, 
right? Um, and we can put a number on that, and we're going to call that the free energy. That's how much energy the molecule has as a result of its configuration. What are the bonds? What are the bond strengths? Who is bonded to what? How big is the thing? Right? All of that is the free energy. Free energy is energy that you can potentially get out right, uh, via some sort of chemical reaction. This is not nuclear energy at all, a completely different thing. Right? So free energy is the energy that you can, at least on paper, liberate right, uh, from a bond somewhere in one way or another. Uh, in the reactants, and then we have the products over here, and you can see the products are lower energy. So in order to go from here to there, we need to get some of the energy back out. The molecule is going to come apart. Energy is going to be liberated. How much is going to be liberated? Exactly this amount, right, uh, is going to be liberated as this reaction goes from over here to over there. So this is, again, one of those uh, exergonic, exergonic reactions that this was a chemistry class we would call it an exothermic reaction, okay? Uh, and if we go in the other direction, okay, with endergonic reactions, here again we have our reactants and we need to add some energy to this reaction to get it to progress in this direction, okay? So we can look at the difference in free energy. Again, what is the sum total of all the energy and all of those bonds with the reactants? How much sum total free energy is on the bonds of all the products? And we need to at least add that much energy in order to get the reaction to progress in this direction. So we need to have some sort of energy source combining oxygen with glucose um, to get some of that energy back out again so we can add it to this. How much energy do we need to add? At least, at least this much, right? We don't have to add exactly that much. Um, if we go back to this direction and, and take this reaction in this direction, we will get exactly this much out. In order to make this reaction go in the other way, we only have to add at least that much. We have to get over this hump. Okay, if we add this much energy, we're not going to get it, right? Uh, so we need to add at least this amount um, to get that reaction to go, all right? So this is one of those endergonic reactions where we have to add at least this much energy uh, to the reaction in order to get it to progress and get that higher energy product, right? You have to add enough energy to get the sum total of all the energy and all of those bonds, okay? Good, good, all right. Uh, and just to remind you, right, uh, of this in a biology, we're kind of bouncing back and forth between chemistry, physics, and biology here pretty wantonly, right? So this is our application of that, right? This is that molecule that we're trying to make up here with our mitochondria and the molecule that we're splitting apart when we want to have some good work happen, right? So here we can think about ATP in the same sort of diagrams of endothermic and exothermic, endergonic and, ecto and, and exergonic reactions. We have this thing, right? And if we break this bond right there, we're going to get a very known, very given, uh, very measurable amount of energy out, okay? And if we want to make this thing, right, we need to add at least that much energy in order to get that reaction to progress, right? And just about all the time, whenever we take biological molecules and we want to break them apart into smaller pieces, we, what's that called? What's that reaction called when you do that? How do you get a, a bunch of big complex molecules and you break them apart into smaller one? Hydrolysis, yeah, you hydrolyze, right? You can take that water molecule, split it apart, put a hydroxy on one side, put the hydrogen ion on the other, and things come apart. And in this case, when we do that, a lot of energy is gonna come out, right? Um, and we're gonna be able to do good things with it, like active transport. Megan, you're looking at me with a furrowed brow. You all good? Yeah. Okay, good. And you got more and more like like that as we but we're all good excellent all right um so with all of these reactions that are happening in our bodies okay they are happening with enzymes okay as you already know from our earlier conversation about biomolecules enzymes are the workhorses here they're the thing that is actually doing the work all right um and we're going to talk about enzymes in a couple of different ways here we're going to talk about what they do in the general sense right and then for about a half an hour, we're going to talk about how enzymes actually do it. And then we're going to talk about how those enzyme activities are actually controlled, right? How do you regulate them? You don't just have unregulated enzymes zipping around your body all over the place all the time, right? You need to control these things. You need to rein them in and have them do what you want, when you want them to do so, okay? So what enzymes are doing, and this is important to realize, they're not making reactions happen that can't normally happen by themselves, right? So they're not doing magic. All right, they're not making magical reactions happen that couldn't happen without them. All they're doing is making those reactions happen a lot faster, a lot faster. 
right? Earlier we were talking about glucose coming apart into carbon dioxide and water. Remember that? Yes? Kind of. Kind of. That was 10 minutes ago, right? Yes, we, we were talking about that, right? Um, and we were talking about that happening inside of our bodies. We were talking about that happening in a campfire, all right? Um, and talking about, oh, that's kind of the same reaction going on. The same chemistry is involved. The same amount of energy comes out and all that kind of stuff, right? Um, if we take a tree and we knock it over in the woods, it doesn't matter if anybody's around to listen to it or not, right? The sun is going to be shining down on that tree, right? Um, it's going to be absorbing energy from the environment, and some of that glucose is going to start coming apart into carbon dioxide and water by itself, okay? So that reaction can proceed on its own, and in order to get that entire tree broken down into water and carbon dioxide is going to take a very long time, okay? We can take that same amount, okay, of glucose, and we can put it into our bodies and let our enzymes act on it, have the exact same reaction happen, have the exact same amount of energy come out, but it's going to happen very, very quickly, all right? So we're not making reactions happen that can't normally happen. We're just drastically increasing the rate uh, by several million times in many cases, right? So we're, making, we're not making reactions happen. We're making them happen faster. That faster, I should have italicized it, underlined it, bold-faced it, and put it in a different color and animated it so it like glows back and forth at you, right? Um, this is important, right? It just makes the reactions happen faster than they normally would, okay? Uh, enzymes are not used up in the reaction, okay? Um, you can use the same enzyme over and over and over and over again. Um, if you're pounding nails into, a, into some wood to make a house, you, can use this, you don't just use one hammer pounding one nail, then you have to get another hammer, right? Uh, you can use the same hammer over and over again, right, uh, to pound in as many nails as you want, right? So enzymes are not exhausted in the process, okay? You can use the same enzyme over and over and over again. Good. Um, the same enzyme works for both the forward and the backward direction of the reaction. So the same set of enzymes that we can use, right, to take that glucose molecule and break it apart, Right? We could use those some enzymes to take the carbon dioxide out of the water and push the reaction in the other direction right? um, and build the glucose molecule from them. Those reactions will happen both ways. Okay? Of the same reactions that take molecules apart, you can use to put molecules together. All right? um, we can kind of use our hammer example for this as well. If you've got one of those nice claw roofing, uh, roofing hammers, right? you can use the ha same hammer to pound the nails in. You can use the same hammer to do it again. To, yeah, take the nail back out, right? So the same tool gets used in both directions, putting nails in and taking nails out. So the enzyme works in the exact same way. And enzymes are substrate-specific. Um, they're very good at the reaction that they have happen, happen, which is a poorly phrased sentence, right? Uh, they're very good at making that reaction happen in both directions, right? But they only work on that one reaction, right? If you have a slightly different reaction that you'd like to, to have happen, you probably need a different enzyme to do that, right? So they're very, very good at what they do, and they can increase the rate of that reaction very, very quickly, right? But they are extremely specific in what reaction they can, they can actually achieve, right? And you have a lot of reactions. Yes? yes. You have a lot of reactions. Um, and every one of those needs its own enzyme, okay? And every one of those enzymes needs its own gene, right? Um, which means your DNA is going to be really, really long, right? If enzymes weren't that specific, you wouldn't need such a huge genome, right? The specificity of that is good because they work really, really well. It's kind of the whole, uh, you know, jack of all trades is master of none. You know, you can either be a generalist or a specialist. If you're going to specialize, you can usually do that one thing really, really well. But if you're going to be a generalist, you can do a lot of things, but none of them particularly well. Your enzymes are the ultimate specialists. They do that one thing really, really well. So you're saddled with the task of making a lot of specialist molecules, which takes a huge amount of DNA to achieve. Even for a bacteria, it takes a huge amount of DNA to achieve that. All right, so that's what enzymes are doing. Now we want to know how enzymes actually do it. It's fine to say they make reactions happen faster, but how actually does an enzyme make your reaction happen faster? Okay, and to think about that, we need to think about why reactions aren't progressing at the rate they're progressing anyway. If we talk about why it takes so long for the glucose in a tree to come apart into carbon dioxide and water, why does it take so long? Okay, what's holding the stability of that molecule in place? Right? And that is called the activation energy barrier. It's this little hump right here. 
So again, let's say that we want our reaction to proceed in this direction. We have our glucose molecule and we want to turn that into carbon dioxide and water. To do that, as you already know, because we talked about it a million times today even, energy is going to come out. Right? The problem is, if you look at the intermediate states of this reaction, to get from here, okay, over to here, you actually have to add some energy into that to get it to go. Right? You have to go through a stage of intermediate, uh, intermediate reactions right, that take more energy than you start with. All right? If this was flat and there was no little hump here, things would just always just be cascading right down the roller coaster and trees would literally be bursting into flames outside all around you. Right? So this is the question, why don't trees just burst into flames outside if you're carrying so much energy? Right? Um, and the height of this hump is going to be directly related to the stability of that molecule. Okay? And some molecules out there are very, very stable. Glucose is very stable. Do you ever try to light a campfire and you have an epic fail? And you just get tired, so you just pour gas on it? Absolutely, right? Um, you get tired of trying to light the thing, right? Glucose is pretty, sometimes you've got to sit there with a lighter for half, oh, goodness sakes, it's still not lit, right? Um, wet or dry, sometimes it takes a long time to light, right? You have to oftentimes add quite a bit of energy for things, to things to get them to destabilize and start coming apart. Once you get to that point, the energy is going to start coming out rapidly, okay? And hopefully controllably. Um, other molecules that are not stable, it doesn't take as much energy to put into those before those start to come apart. I'm thinking, get some nitroglycerin out of the bottom of a mine shaft that's been there for 50 or 60 years, right? You have to look at it funny, right? And it'll destabilize and come apart, right? If you have a little vial of nitroglycerin or something like that, you don't need to sit there with a lighter, okay, underneath it and, and, and start flicking your bick on it, right? I've never said that in class before, by the way. How do I get, how do I get that to blow? Drop it, I can just, I can just, flick, I can just flick it, right? And the thing's going to destabilize. Just a little bit of kinetic energy that I'm adding by moving my hand, right, is enough to get that nitroglycerin over that energy activation barrier, and a lot of the energy is going to start to come out. I can, versus, I can take a log, and I can shake it all I want, right? Um, and it's not going to spontaneously burst into flames, right? I'm just not adding enough energy to get the sum total of all the products of that entire log over that energy activation barrier, right? So... There it is. When you actually get a sustainable fire, just so you know, you're finally at the point where you have enough glucose molecules in one localized spot, right, um, that are, have high enough energy to get over that, where it actually provides enough energy to the environment to get their neighbors over that energy activation barrier. Okay, that's when you actually have a sustainable fire. And that oftentimes takes a lot of frustration and a lot of newspaper and a lot of big lighters and things like that, or a little bit of gasoline, right, uh, to, get that, to get that to go, okay? So what an enzyme is going to do for us, right, in order to make these reactions happen faster, it's not going to change the chemistry, okay? The chemistry has to stay the same. What it's going to do, it's going to lower that barrier, okay? So if, like I said, that tree is laying over in the forest, right, and it's absorbing the sunlight energy and energy from the environment, occasionally some of those glucose molecules are going to absorb enough energy so that they're going to get over that energy activation barrier and they're going to come apart, right? If we take that tree out in the forest and we lower that barrier and the, still, the sun is just shining on it, that whole process is going to happen a lot faster, right? More of those glucose molecules are going to be absorbing enough energy to get over that energy activation hump because it's smaller now, Right? And the entire tree is going to come apart into carbon dioxide and water a lot faster. Right? So this is how enzymes make reactions happen faster. They don't change the chemistry. They lower that energy activation barrier, where it takes less energy from the environment for the thing to come apart. What do you think? Good? So I just answered the question for you. Why doesn't everything just spontaneously burst apart into its fundamental lowest energy state outside? Right? Everything has this little energy activation barrier. Right? You have to go through a region of instability before you start getting energy out. Right? And in order to do that, you have to add energy into it. Okay? If you have an enzyme-mediated reaction, you still have to add energy, but you can get away with adding less, which is handy. So the process by which the enzyme lowers this energy activation barrier is referred to as the induced fit model. Okay? So what the induced fit model uh, says, right? Well, the name, as, the thing, as these things oftentimes do, will describe what's going on, 
right? Substrate molecules are being brought together, okay? So in enzyme, well, if we're going to try to make something big and complicated, or we're going to take a, a large molecule and break it apart, right? We're going to provide a place on the enzyme, right, where that reaction can happen. If we're talking, oh, I had a, an excellent, uh, let me try to find something that can demonstrate with up here. Mm. All right. The reaction is, hopefully I don't drop this thing, uh, me reaching out and grabbing this thing. Okay? That's the reaction that I want to have happen. Right? There are two ways we can have this reaction happen. We can try to see if this reaction can happen by itself. So this beaker, I'm not going to throw it, right, um, is just going to be Brownian motion like you saw in lab, is just going to be bouncing around the room. Okay? I, too, am just going to be bouncing around the room. For this reaction to happen, where I go like that, okay, we have to accidentally and randomly end up with this beaker bouncing in to my hand. What are the chances? Eh, measurable, but really, really small. This is a big room, pretty small, right? Um, or, right, we can have a substrate that holds on to the beaker that I sit on. What are the chances of that happening now? Much higher. Not 100%, but I'm closer, right? It's holding us in place. Not only is it providing a place where the reaction can happen, it is orienting us both, right, in the appropriate direction. So it's not that I'm just kind of closer like this, and this is going to roll off the table, and this is like that, right? It's actually orienting me like this and orienting that like this, okay? So it orients these molecules in the appropriate orientation for the reaction to. So now we don't have to randomly bounce around the room until we find each other. We just have to, er, chances are much higher, okay? Um, there might be things in the way, right, um, that are blocking, whoa, hey, what's that? You know, blocking the reaction from happening. Right? Usually in enzymes, that thing that's blocking your reaction is water, because water, water everywhere, right? Um, you're 70% of it or whatever the number is these days. Um, so chances are water is interfering because water is small, right? Water can be interfering with the progress of that reaction, literally being in the way. All right? Um, so how do I get this water out of the way? What if all the R groups right here were nonpolar? What would that do? It would repel all of the water, right? Usually, the active sites of these enzymes will be nonpolar R groups. A lot of nonpolar covalent bonds in the R groups. Man, it's inhaled like half of a thing of chalk. You can hear my chalkiness, right, increasing, right? Um, a lot of these nonpolar covalent bonds in these R groups will be actively repelling the water out of this active site. So now we're in the same time, we're in the same place, we're appropriately oriented, there's nothing in the way. I'm not making a reaction happen that couldn't happen if we were just all bouncing around the room, right? I've just increased the chances of it drastically, right? If you want to think of another example of this, you can think of social networking or dating sites on the internet, right? Um, there is a measurable probabilistic chance that a person in Alaska will have a child with somebody who lives in Sri Lanka. What are the chances? Really, really low. What if... We bring those individuals together and put them in the same time and in the same place. We put them both in this room. What about our chances now? Higher, lower? Still not great, probably, right? But higher. Higher. Logically higher, right? What if we put them really, really close to each other, okay, and have them face to face, that far away from each other? Higher still? Maybe, right? Work with me on this, right? Measurably higher, right? We still have a problem, don't we? Before they can start doing the things that they're going to need to do in order to go on from there, right? What's our big problem here? 25 students are watching, right? That's probably not going to end up in viable offspring in the next generation, right? So all of you need to leave, right? Um, shutting out, right, things that are interfering with the process, right? So we need to get all of you out of the room, right? How about the chances now? Maybe even higher still, right? All we need is a uh, little Ingerbold Humperdinck, maybe some uh, Tom Jones and a mirror ball, 
bottle of crystal and you know it, we're, we're all good right so just by doing these kinds of things right with anything you can talk about human social culture you can talk about biochemistry right you're going to increase the chances of that reaction happening just by doing those things bring them together orient them in the right direction get everything else out of the way that is going to lower the amount of energy it takes for that reaction to happen that is going to lower that energy activation barrier okay it's called the induced fit model what do you think? Makes sense. If you're going in the other direction, right, if you're taking something complex and taking it apart, right, part of the induced fit model um, is where it includes an actual shape, shape change, right? Sometimes when you take this thing and plug it into that active site, um, it will actually reshuffle some of these ionic bonds in this molecule, and it will literally pull the things apart, okay? The things will uh, fly off in the environment, and the enzyme will go back to its original conformation where it's able to take another something and pull it apart, right? So sometimes the enzyme itself can reconfigure to shove those things together or pull those things apart when those substrates end up in that active site, right? Which is kind of neat, right? So they're, like I said, they're not making reactions happen that wouldn't happen before. They're increasing the rate using what we call the induced fit model. Lot to talk about with enzymes today, right? Lot to talk about. All right. Um, oftentimes these enzymes are huge, sometimes 10, 20,000 amino acids long, really big bulky things, which is a problem for reasons which we were talking about before. You're getting these sequences off of your DNA, right, but all the ribosomes are out there in the, uh, um, in the, uh, in the cytoplasm, which was why we need that whole messenger RNA intermediate if you're a eukaryote, right? Um, so all of these little knobby things here are amino acids, amino acid molecules, side chains, R groups, amino functional groups, carboxyls, all that other kind of stuff. Right? Um, this little thing right here will be uh, the active site. Right? So all of this frame framework is in place so we can do something interesting with that little thing right there. Right? If you can get this little thing to plug in right there, and this little thing is the only thing that will plug in right there, right? then your reaction will proceed. Cool. Seems like a lot of wasted amino acids up there for one little, one little thing. Yet, enzymes tend to be big. They tend to be big. So we're coming dangerously close to thinking about these things just kind of happening on their own, right? Out, out of any sort of control, just another thing out there that's going to increase the rate of all your reactions. That's not necessarily something that you want to do, right? Um, you don't want to have inappropriate reactions happening in the wrong time of day, the wrong time of your life, and things like that. When that happens, usually it doesn't end well in the long run, right? You want to be able to control these things. You want to be able to control digestion. You'd like to be able to control growth spurts. You'd like to be able to control the onset of puberty, right? Things like that, right? All of these enzyme-mediated protein-based things, right? So how do you, and some of these things you control uh, on the minute-by-minute -minute basis. Others you control during the course of a day. Some things you control monthly. Some things you control yearly, right? Seasonal things. Some reactions you control um, and in terms of a lifetime. Some things you only have happen once in your life. Or two if you have two kids. Or three times if you have three kids. Right? Um, the enzymatic reactions that are coupled with childbirth are things that are only going to happen every once in a while. You don't want those reactions going on all the time. Okay? Um, you want to be able to control these things for goodness sakes. Right? So how do you do it? If you want to have a biochemical reaction happen, okay? It's like, oh, there's a reaction in my body and I need to go ahead and let that progress. So I need to access my DNA. I need to unwrap that. I need to make a strand of messenger RNA. Um, I need to take that messenger RNA, I need to thread that thing, it's about 10 or 20,000 bases long, uh, through that pore, okay, I did that, now I need to find a ribosome, okay, here's a ribosome, I'm going to bind it to the ribosome, uh, I'm going to go ahead and feed that thing through, I'm going to grab 20 or 30,000 amino acids out of the environment, I'm going to line them up in a nice row, um, <coughs> hopefully this is not a reaction that you need to have happen quickly, right, it's going to take a long time to build up enough protein and enzyme numbers in order to actually have the reaction system-wide do what you want it to. Right? That's not an efficient way to go. You'll eventually get to do the reaction sometime next week. Okay? Um, and like I said, if it's something important, you don't have that kind of time to waste. Okay? It would be better if you had all the enzymes already constructed, and all you have to do is activate them or deactivate them. Right? Um, and this is where allosteric activation and allosteric inhibition come into play. Here's our enzyme. Looks like the Death Star. Right? Um, if you know Star Wars. 
Uh, this is where the laser comes out, right? Um, and what we want this enzyme to do, we want this round hole to accept this blue square, this blue cube, right, as part of the uh, reaction uh, substrate, okay? Um, what you learned two things when you were three. One of them was clean up after yourself. The other one is that no matter how hard you hit, you cannot get the square into the round hole, right? Uh, you get your, you know, you can hit it all you want, right? Square peg does not go into round hole. You've learned that, right, geometry early on in the course of your life, right? Um, in order to get this reaction to proceed, we need to change the shape of that thing, okay? So what we will do, we will make all the enzyme that we want all over our body, right? We will make a lot of elasteric activators and store them in the cells. When we want this reaction to proceed, all we have to do now is release the elasteric activators into the body. Dump them out of the Golgi or dump them out of the vesicles into the body. When the activator interacts with the elasteric binding site, it changes the shape of the active site to accept the cube, right? So we make all of the enzymes in advance and just release the activator. And if we do that, the reaction will progress. You can do this much more quickly than if you just had to make it all a bunch of new enzymes all the time. Yes? Yes. Uh, conversely, you can have an allosteric inhibitor. Maybe this is a reaction that you want to have happening most of the time, and occasionally you want to turn it off. All right? So in its uninterfered with state, the active site is cubical, right? And the substrate is a cube, right? And that reaction can happen all the time. If you want to turn that reaction off, you release the inhibitor out into the body. When the inhibitor plugs in, to the inhibition binding site on the protein, it changes the shape of the active site and the substrate can no longer fit into the activation site. So that would be an example of allosteric inhibition. So allosteric activation, you're turning the protein on by releasing the activator. Allosteric inhibition, you're turning the protein off by releasing the inhibitor. So these would be good for reactions that you want to occasionally turn on that you don't want to have going most of the time, and occasionally you want to go ahead, yeah, I need to do that now, I'll release the activator as a one-off thing, and the reaction will progress for a while. Versus these, where you would like to have the reaction happening most of the time, and if you want to shut it off, ah, I can just go ahead and release the inhibitor. Sound good? Excellent. So you can control all of these things just by selectively releasing inhibitors and activators, as you need to, which is easy, easier to do than accessing the DNA all the time, that's for sure. This is an example of non-competitive inhibition, okay? We are, in this case, the allosteric inhibition, we are inhibiting, right, the reaction from progressing, but in a non-competitive way. When we're talking about non-competitive, we're saying, is this inhibitor actually competing for the active site with something else, right? In this case, it's not. It's just plugging in and changing the shape of the enzyme. Conversely, you could have a competitor um, at, that's actually competing for that active site, like this little thing right here. So usually this is the substrate and here's the active site. Le everything left to itself, this substrate can interact with the active site, reaction can proceed and everything is fine, right? Or we can produce this really, really small tidbitty thing that we're gonna kick out there, right? It's gonna bind with the active site right here. When it does that, the substrate can no longer bind with the enzyme, right? So this is an example of competitive inhibition. So you can compare and contrast several things. You can compare and contrast allosteric activation with allosteric inhibition, and you can compare and contrast competitive and non-competitive inhibition. And to make matters worse, there is a third kind of inhibition, okay? Remember homeostasis? What is homeostasis? Yeah, you're doing a better job of answering this than my earlier question, that's for sure, right? Um, keeping internal environment consistent, right? Blood pressure, uh, temperature, glucose levels, salinity, pH, all that kind of stuff kept nice and constant, right? And we always talk about room temperature and things like that when we think about homeostasis. How do we keep the room at the right temperature at 72 degrees, right? When it gets too warm in here, air conditioner kicks on, brings the temperature back down. If it gets too cool in here, right, the heater kicks on, warms the room back up, and negates that stimulus, right? With proteins, we do the exact same thing. It's called feedback inhibition. When we're talking about it in the context of the classroom and classroom temperature, it's still feedback inhibition on the industrial temperature classroom scale, 
right? Um, so the process is the same. You can also have this feedback inhibition happening in enzymatic chains, enzymatic sequences, reaction chains. So here you have a substrate, and you have one, two, three, four, five enzymes that are going to act on it in various stages. The end product is going to be the amino acid tryptophan. All right? Now what's funny about this, tryptophan acts as an inhibitor for this enzyme right here. So tryptophan's an amino acid, okay? You're gonna use it to make proteins. Let's say that you're not making any proteins and you're gonna start making tryptophan until you've made all the proteins that you're gonna make. And once you do that, the level of tryptophan is gonna to start to rise and at the same time, it's gonna start inhibiting this enzyme over here and it's gonna stop, right? So you have 20 amino acids that you need, right? Um, 11 of them, approximately half, I think it's 11, are um, non-essential, right? You can make them. The rest of them are essential, you have to eat them, okay? Of those 10 or 11 or whatever it is that you can make, right? They're all being regulated concentration-wise in your body through this feedback inhibition. When you start making proteins, you stop inhibiting those sequences to make those amino acids and the levels will start to rise until you're done making proteins, in which case they'll start acting like they're inhibitors and they will stop. All right, so feedback inhibition. Sound good? Jessica, we all good? Yeah. Excellent. So there's inhibition of the non-competitive sort, there's inhibition of the competitive sort, and then there is feedback inhibition. Now this inhibition over here can either be competitive or non-competitive. It's one or the other. Good? Excellent. So we've talked about denaturing proteins already once, right? You can change the nature of the environment and then you can deform the thing. You can add temperature to an enzyme or protein and it'll change its shape. It's called cooking, right? Cook it like an egg and it denatures those proteins and things like that. You can change the pH, right? You can spritz some lemon juice on some, uh, on some seafood and make, you guys don't eat out enough, do you? Ceviche, thank you, right? Good acidity seared scallops, right? You do the same thing to the proteins as you do when you cook them without making them hot so the good oceany flavor is retained. Um, you can change the salinity and denature proteins that way, right? It's called making beef jerky, okay, which is not a cooked product, okay? You can have allosteric regulators, coenzymes, cofactors, other little nook and cranny molecules that can interfere with these enzymes in a variety of ways to change their shape and therefore change their function. Because as we just went through this whole thing, right, if you change the shape of that active site, nothing's going to happen, right? So maintaining the fidelity in the shape of that activation site when you want it to is key to the induced fit model, right? Change the shape, the induced fit model goes out the window and nothing happens, okay? Energy activation barriers do not get lowered if you change the shape of the active site, okay? So we've talked about this already as well, specifically the effect of temperature specifically, right? Um, there are a lot of enzymes in your body that work ideally at 98.6 degrees. That's where the configuration is just so, that's where the activation site is keyed in to a particular reaction most effectively, right? If we start to cool that enzyme off, right? We're going to start changing the nature of those relationships between those R groups and the active site can change its shape and the reaction can slow down, right? Or we can heat it up, okay? If we start heating up that enzyme, it's gonna start reconfiguring those R group interactions. The activation site is gonna change its shape and the reaction is gonna slow down or even stop if you go to the extreme case, right? So um, I think I talked about this on the first or second day of class, that optimal temperature for DNA synthesis, right? It's right at about 98, 99 degrees, right? That's where the active sites on those enzymes are uh, best shaped for accepting those enzyme substrates, right? And making those reactions happen, a la the induced fit model. That's where the sum total of all energy activation barriers for DNA, right, is at its lowest, right, at 98.6, all right? So you can build it very, very quickly. If you give yourself a fever because you got some kind of bug or something like that, you're gonna start getting hot, right? Um, and you're gonna pull that active site slightly out of shape, right? You're gonna change that rate of DNA synthesis, hopefully for the bug that's infecting you, 
all right? Um, if you have a virus and you're relying on your own proteins and things like that to synthesize that viral DNA, give yourself a fever, that rate of viral growth is going to be diminished greatly. The rate of your own DNA synthesis is going to be diminished. Hopefully your immune system can work it out in the process. Hopefully there are more of your cells than there are viral cells, right? And if there are, then you'll be okay, okay? So these high temperatures are disrupting these bonds and destroying active, uh, active sites, changing the shape of the active site. And then there's always, I like to talk about cats a lot, just because I have two of them and they're both strange. Um, here we have a Siamese cat, and we know Siamese cats by their lovely color, right? They have the nice, uh, they're black, where are they black? They're black on the muzzle, tips of the ears, on the hands and on the feet, right? Um, and on the tip of the tail. What, feet? You like that? Yeah. Um, so paws, hands, feet, tip of the tail, ears, and, and the muzzle, right? On the places on the cat where the temperature is coolest, right? So when a Siamese cat is born, when they're wee little babies, right, they don't have these color patterns at all, right? They're all nice light cream colored, right? And as they start aging, right, and as a couple of weeks, couple of months go by, they'll start developing those dark, dark muzzle, dark tips of the ears, dark hands, dark feet, and dark tip of tail, right? Um, uh, there is an enzyme called tyrosinase, which is responsible for taking the amino acid um, tyrosine, right, and it converts it into skin pigments. And it works most effectively at cooler temperatures. On the regions where the cat is hot, right, that enzyme is not functioning. In regions where the cat is cool, like in the muzzle, on the tips of the ears, hands, feet, tip of the tail, right, that enzyme is working very, very well, right? And in those regions, the cat is depositing more melanin in the skin, right? And the skin and the hair is getting darker in those places, right? Or if you took the Siamese cat and put it in a cold environment, the whole cat would get dark, right? Or if you took the Siamese cat and you put it in the tropics, the whole cat would get light, right? So you can screw with your Siamese cat, right? Um, if you want to have uh, it, if you want to have like a, a Google billboard on the side of it, you can put a little vest on it that uh, runs cool water through it, which says Google on the side of it where the cool tubing is, right? Wait a couple of months, your cat's going to love this, right? Um, and you take it off and it'll say, it'll have dark skin and it'll say Google on the side of the cat where the melanin has been deposited, right? Um, so in this case with the Siamese cat, those color patterns are directly the result of enzymes interacting with the environment and where the cat is in this warmer, right, all in the central part of the body where that central heat is, that enzyme is not working, right? In those regions where the cat is a little bit cooler, that's the prime active site, uh, the, pr the prime temperature for those active sites and that tyrosinase, and that's where the melanin is being produced. That's where the cat is getting darker. Right? And it only seems like it's a good idea, too, right? Um, in those darker regions where the cat is coolest, now that these regions are darker, they're going to be absorbing, right? More electromagnetic radiation and bringing that temperature back up, right? So um, the cat is specifically, right, trying to come up with ways to warm up its body where it's the coolest, which is kind of neat. Question? Um, well, like, would this only happen when it's younger or? It'll go through, uh, through the whole life. It'll, it'll happen. It, right? it, it can go either way, right? So it can go either way. If, if you take this cat, right, and you put it in a very warm environment, after time, right, um, it, after time, those, those dark spots will go away. A seismic cat, right? <laughs> I have a seismic cat. He's 23 pounds, right? It's, it, it is seismic. All right, uh, take 20 minutes. I'll see you over in lab, 2 o'clock.